Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. It's me, Indy, and I'm here with Rachel Presser from Sonic Toad, and she's going to be talking about government contracts for indie game developers, which is, I'm assuming it's you, indie game devs. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Dan. (laughs) Um, Hey, everyone. Uh, Glad to be back. And we're going to be talking about government contracts, grants, and other really fun stuff. I I just like to make the intro as uncomfortable and weird as possible, so that's fine. Okay, here we go. Take, <laughs> take it away. Take it away. Yeah, so hey, everyone. Uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Uh, good morning from the West Coast. Um, still morning over here. Afternoon if you're back east. So yeah, um, I'm Rachel Presser, Asanto Consulting and Media. And today we're going to be talking about government contracts and grants for game developers. So for a little bit about me, if you're not familiar with Santo Consulting, if you haven't been accosted by me at a conference and gotten well, one of my infamous Sonic Toad chip clips or other Toad-related swag. Um, yeah, basically, I do business of games consulting. I'm a business and industry consultant. I work both, you know, with mostly with indie developers, you know, going over, con- you know, um, publisher contracts, business, you know, startup plans and that sort of thing. I also do a lot of business education at colleges and private organizations. I help people with loan and grant applications like the ones we're going to be talking about. Um, you can consult with me you know, through my own website. I also have a clarity line with friends by the minute, and I'm going to be you know, available after today's session. If you have a couple quick questions, you can hit me up on Discord, which I put my Discord ID here. And for more information on where to find me, random stuff I'm working on, I also have a link tree you can check out. So without further ado, we're going to dive into today's topic. So when it comes to getting, you know, funding for making video games, you know, there's all sorts of different sources. You know, a lot of, a lot of us, you know, look to private funds, like working with publishers, you know, getting, getting loans, um, you know, like private grants, you know, if, for instance, like the Epic Mega Grant, if you're making games in Unreal, for instance. But some people also look to public sources, like getting government grants, which is a little more difficult to do in the U.S. compared to Canada and some other countries that have a little more support for artists. But one interesting advantage that we do have as game developers is that we do straddle a mix of the arts, technology, and business, which means that we do have some options available as far as government funding tends to go. And so the most common types that we get from federal and state governments would be 
grants, loans, whether they're direct or they're just backed by the government through a bank, federal and state awards, which I'm going to have a few slides on that, but like award programs are a little less common. And then government contracts, which is what I'm primarily going to be talking about today. And so why should you consider going into government contracting? It may seem a little bit of a bizarre path for an indie game developer to consider. And I think that you should consider it. It is definitely a path that is a little underrated. I mean, it's not the easiest one to walk, but it's definitely one you should consider because, for one, the government is a very reliable and reputable client to have. You can also, you know, provide services or sell goods at federal, state, and local levels. And then the SBA provides bidding assistance, you know, to women and minority-owned businesses. There's also specific programs. If you or anyone on your dev team is a veteran who owns the company, there's also specific programs, which I'm going to, like, we're going to take a quick glance to get not going to spend a lot of time on that, but there are options available. So I'm actually going to start with a quick explainer about how the SBA works, because a lot of people tend to look to them, you know, for help with the bidding process, but also looking for government grants, other types of funding. And there's usually a bit of like a fundamental misunderstanding of how the SBA, the Small Business Administration, tends to work. So I'm going to explain that so you have a good foundation, you know, whether you're doing this for your studio or any other, you know, ventures you may be considering. And it's mainly that the SBA, you know, has, yeah, has about 20 different divisions and it's designed to serve the needs of companies like ours, which have, you know, less than 500 employees, which that is the majority of American businesses may not seem like it, but that really is what, you know, the statistics um, tell us. And, they basically help assign 23% of prime federal government contracts to small businesses like ours. And if don't worry, we're, I'm going to explain what a prime contract is in a bit if you're wondering what that means. And so what the SBA offers us is that they have lending programs, business grants, help with getting government contracting. They have a lot of free mentorship programs, um, you know, which are designed to help, you know, disadvantaged groups, you know, get ahead in business. Um, SCORE can be a very good resource. That stands for the Society of Retired Executives. They have a lot of people, you know, who've been in the business field a long time. They've retired. Now they're ready to educate the next generation. And it's a lot of them may not always be versed in game development specifically, but if you have, you know, business questions, you want some free outside perspective, it's definitely an underutilized resource where, you know, it doesn't hurt to look up a chapter and get some help that way. That's how I got started on my entrepreneurship journey many, many moons ago. And then your regional SBA office, you know, may have some resources that you may not have even thought of. And there is at least one in every state. And then depending on, you know, how populated though your area is, um, what the specific economy is like locally, there may be more offices. And you should check in with them because they often have region-specific programs that you may not be able to find out about on the main SBA website. So it doesn't hurt to give them, you know, a check on, you know, things like contracting opportunities, grant programs, and so on. They also have a little program called Lender Match, which is a free automated matchmaker tool, you know, for small businesses, alternative lenders. It's basically kind of like Tinder, but for trying to find a bank. <laughs> and 
yeah, varies by region. It's free to sign up for. It doesn't hurt to give it a try if you're considering this. And then the SBA is technically, you know, not a lender. The only um, exception to this was when we had, you know, the idle loans because of COVID. And then that actually did go directly through the SBA. Usually it must go through a bank. They guarantee, you know, pretty small loans up to $50,000, up to 90% of higher loans under the 7A program. And there is talk that the Biden administration actually will change this, that you can get, you know, you can borrow guilty from the SBA. Let's hope that happens. That's going to be revolutionary, but yeah, given the pace of things, I'm not holding my breath right now. Now for the part you're really here for, which is the grant programs. So once again, I'm going to repeat this. Always check with your regional SBA office because you may have some region-specific grants that you know are just very obscure and you're not going to find them on the main SBA website. So always check with your regional office. And then the two chief programs for game developers tend to fall under this umbrella right here, which is small business innovation research and small business technology transfer. Those are the two that you're most likely going to be looking at. And I'm going to explain the difference between these programs and government contracting about, you know, namely like which projects would be a better fit for one compared to the other. And then based on feedback, I've also gotten, you know, from some of the classes I've taught and from clients, they've um, reported success with National Science Foundation grants with the, you know, these two programs right here didn't have any suitable opportunities or, you know, they just got, you know, they didn't get that for whatever reason. Um, it's not administered through the SBA, but depending on what kind of project that you're working on, you may be able to get something to the National Science Foundation. So it's just something to consider. And then as for applying for these grants, you just go to sbir.gov funding, look up the initiatives that are currently accepting proposals, and then you want to put a kick-ass proposal together. It's definitely not something to sleep on. But you're also usually going to need a partner organization, which you can find through the SBIR website. And then Games for Change is also an excellent resource to find these partners. So they have their annual Games for Change Festival. And then year-round, though, they also do you know, provide resources to connect you with the right kinds of grant partners like universities, nonprofits, um, you know, and other initiatives that can help you get this kind of funding. And then well, yeah, I'm not going to spend much time on this slide because these programs are a little more obscure and they also have like a set of regulations that is completely different from the stuff we're primarily talking about. But it's something worth, you know, discussing in brief because it, once again, it's an avenue that not a lot of people really know about. It's a pretty obscure um, scheme called the SBA Awards Program, where awards are, yeah, are these instruments where you do get money directly from a federal agency. You get, you know, cost reimbursement. And then there's there's certain, um, yeah, like covenants you have to obey in this um, in this whole scheme. <coughs> um, yeah, it's one of those things that like not a lot of people really know about, but could be worth looking into. Some of the best known awards programs are namely for veteran-owned businesses, um, along with the FAST program, which, yeah, which once again, that ties back to those, you know, scientific and technology transfer grants I just, you know, discussed. And yeah, if you or anyone on your team is also, you know, a veteran with a service, um, you know, a service-connected disability, 
They do have additional entrepreneurship resources that are available through the SBA awards program, um, yeah, along with Boots to Business. So these are avenues to, you know, to consider if you qualify. Just definitely you know, one of those stones you don't want to leave unturned. But it's not really as you know like well known or easily accessed as the other methods I'm going to be talking about. So with all that said, you may be wondering, you no, know, can game developers become government contractors? The answer is yes. Even if you're a small company, even if you're a company of one, also yes, because you meet that, you know, that qualification of being a small business with under 500 employees, you actually can secure government contracts. I've had two in my career so far. They were local, one through the city of Trent and one through the state of New York. I've never had employees. I was able to secure those. So as for what game developers can offer, you know, to the government as, you know, as a client, this is just, you know, an example of some of the most common use cases I've seen with my clients and just in general from talking to other people in the industry. Um, yeah, I mean, you can provide a lot of those services that larger tech companies provide, such as proprietary frameworks. You also may be banding together with larger companies like tech companies or larger game studios who are working on prime federal contracts. Um, yeah, training materials, simulations. Um, if you're going to be making serious games and the type of content, you know, it's meant to discuss, you know, serious, you know, crises that we're facing. That's also the type of thing that government agencies tend to be looking for. Um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, those are big ones where they kind of overlap between grant territory and federal contracting, but that's that's a big one to consider. If you're in AR and VR, you may also be a very good fit for government contracts. If you're, you know, if you're selling goods, that's also a big thing that you get a government contract for. You may be surprised what in you know what, a, what an unorthodox market there is for stuff like gaming chairs. That's going to come up a few times. This is something I've seen come up mostly on local levels rather than federal. But I'm just saying it's something to consider. You know, if like you know you're thinking about other streams of income and ways that you can get creative. This is just some of the use cases that have come up. And so what do you need to do if you want to become an official government vendor? Now, there's entire presentations and content I've had on becoming an established business entity. And that's the kind of thing you got to do first. So you need to actually have, yes, some sort of articles of incorporation. Like it doesn't really matter what the entity is in this case, whether it's LLC, corporation, you know, S Corp, C Corp, B Corp doesn't really matter, just as long as you have something that shows you're an actual business. Um, you got to have that taken care of. You need to have, you know, clean books and records with a tax ID and, um, and the correct North American industry classification code, which I'm going to explain that in the next slide, because that this plays a very big role in government contracts, especially since game developers don't actually have one. I'm going to explain that on the next slide. Um, and then, yeah, any um, tax returns, other governmental obligations, make sure you are compliant with all that red tape, all that lovely paperwork you must submit every year. So long as you're compliant with that, you know, the government does check on that edge while you're trying to get them as a client. They will look for this. Um, like if you owe taxes, it does, you know, it's not a big deal. A lot of people do. 
But providing that your tax returns you know, were filed on time, you're making payments, you know, you're compliant, you don't have the IRS or like state agencies chasing after you, you should be fine. Just provide that you know, you're compliant, you have a business in place, you can clearly define and prove who owns the company. And yet yeah, you just want to make sure all that is on the straight and narrow, easy, easy to find, easy to reference. Negotiation skills, which I'm going to be talking about how negotiation, you know, differs for government contracts. Um, it's a lot. There's some similarities to how it is when you work with a publisher or when, you know, you have, you know, more companies today, you know, providing private grants. It's a little different, um, you know, with some similarities, but you got to definitely brush up your negotiation skills for sure. And then for state and local government contracts, um, you also need to comply with their procedures and requirements. So like, I believe like I may be wrong about this. I know this is true for the state jobs. I'm not sure about the government contracts anymore. Um, I believe like in New Jersey, you have to be a resident there in order to get a government contract. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I know for state jobs, that is the case now, <laughs> but yeah. So if you're going to be doing this in the state local level, always look into their acquisition procedures and make sure you're compliant with that. And so, okay, that thing I mentioned about the industry codes. So yeah, this is a very important note if you have a women-owned studio, as I do. I put this some handy link in here so when you get the slide deck, you can check this out if this applies to you, anyone you know who would be interested. Um, we actually do get specific um, assistance from the SBA if you are a software publisher using you know that North American industry code 511 to 10 and so the fact that we don't have an industry code actually works to our advantage so we should take advantage of this exploit the crap out of this just saying just saying so little side note here put the slide in if you or anyone you know needs this information now to move forward what really separates though government contracts from a government grant and that they have basic they have some very very stark differences with a couple similarities in how you get this type of agreement but basically what really separates a government contract from a grant in particular is that grants have you know conditions milestones they yeah they often require partnering with an organization whereas you don't have to do that to get a government contract. It's an option, but you don't have to do that to get the contract. Um, and so the thing about those grants is that, you know, they must have a purpose where <clears throat> it's really meant for the benefit of the public, where government contracts are meant to provide goods and services to government agencies. And that's really what ultimately separates them. And so for this discussion, it's I'm mostly going to be covering federal contracts because those are really the big lucrative ones that most people are trying to get, um, especially most game devs in particular. Um, yeah, because the grant, I said grant funding, as I'm going to get into in the next slides, it can be a little more difficult to get than a contract, believe it or not. You're going to see why in a minute. But pretty much, yeah, a government contract is meant for the procurement. That's why you keep seeing acquisition, procurement, and all this language. Uh, <clears throat> whereas the grant is meant to be, okay, we made this thing. The public's going to benefit from it. It's like, hey, we made a game about, you know, mental health issues. And 
trying to destigmatize that. And then we got, you know, the National Institute of Health to fund it. You know, that's meant to benefit the public to go play that game for free, talk about the stuff, you know, get content, you know, there's buzz in social media, content creators talk about it and hey, it's helping, you know, contribute to eroding that stigma. That's awesome. Whereas we're just, oh, hey, we're, we made this framework, you know, for the IRS. <laughs> I know not as fun, but it's lucrative. It's why people seek this stuff out. So does a grant or a contract make more sense for what you're doing? Yeah, so this is an important thing to consider, you know, when you're thinking about seeking government funding and you don't know if you should go the grant route or try to get a government contract. It, off, it really just depends on what you're trying to do or if there's a specific, you know, development area that you have a lot of skills, experience, and resources. So like, yeah, there's some devs that are just amazing at making simulations. And that can actually lead to some very lucrative government contract opportunities. The same goes for, like, you know, project management skills and training tools. Even if you just, you know, are, like, a freaking wizard with Unity or Unreal, because these programs are starting to become a lot more universal. Like, you would be surprised... Yeah, like how many, you know, like job ads are out there for both the private and public sectors who want engineers who know how to use these technologies. And you can get some damn good government contracts, you know, just by proving, you know, your knowledge with them. Um, whereas if you're looking to do more experimental technologies, um, yeah, and hardware, um, anything in that realm... A grant may be a better fit for you, especially if it's meant, you know, for, you know, the public. You want you want to share this knowledge with other developers, with enthusiasts, you know, educational institutions, anyone that might benefit. Then for that, a grant might be a better fit for you. Um, educational games, edutainment, um, yeah, like transmedia projects, so anything, yeah, serious games, like the mental health stuff I just mentioned, like, that's usually a better fit for a grant, but then there's somewhere there is a bit of overlap, um, especially if you're considering going like, like the games-based learning route if you're making, um, you know, projects for schools. Um, there's a bit of an overlap in that those projects may be a good fit for both games and contracts, you know, but it ultimately depends, you know, on other factors like who it's really meant for, what you're trying to do with it. Um, like, is this really something you don't want to leave up to the to the private sector? Um, along with some of the other key differences between grants and contracts that we're going to discuss. Um, namely, in that the biggest thing that also separates them is not just the regulations in which they're um, subjected to, but the fact that with a, with a grant-funded project, you're the one who defines the scope. You know, so if you're a real control freak about, hey, this is your game or your technology. This is your baby. You know, you you really want to do this a very specific way. You're probably going to have to go the grant route. Whereas when it comes to getting a government contract, it's really the agency that defines the scope. Like they have a need for a framework or they need, you know, this type of program that can be, you know, administered to train you know, like 4,000 some odd employees every year. You know, they have the scope. They need someone who can handle that scope. And if you can't handle it, they're going to pick someone who can. But when it comes to getting picked, this is where it gets really interesting. 
those grants have an extremely competitive process in order to get, you know, funded. You know, like if um, if we have any, you know, listeners from academia, they probably can tell you quite a bit about this. And that, you know, yeah, they're competing with like, you know, hundreds of other universities to get some type of grant. And then, you know, they have entire teams dedicated, you know, to writing those proposals and going back and forth, you know, checking on those applications and other grant opportunities it is a very competitive process. And it's why a lot of game developers, you know, yeah, we have limited time, limited funds. You're going to go for the thing that's understandably a lot shorter, which is why government contracting is a stone you should not leave unturned, especially if you meet some of the criteria that I discussed previously, because they must adhere to what's called SICA, the Competition and Contracting Act, to consider and select contractors. Um, and that, yeah, they are prioritizing women and minority business owners in a lot of cases. Um, that's other specific programs you know, for veterans. Um, and then they're also regulated by, you know, by far, the federal acquisitions regulations and that will compare to the grants, which is just the office of management and budget uniform guidance. Um, in the commercial world, we just adhere to the uniform commercial code and then whatever your state and local regulations are. So yeah, this is a very different world. And that, yeah. And as I mentioned, yeah, the public really is what receives and benefits from your games that were funded by grants. Whereas it's the government agency that contracted you that benefits from what you did for them. And so as for considering some of the pros and cons of going the government contracting route, you know, versus traditional publishers work for hire. Well, I put the most important one at the top. You will get paid. Um, yeah, that, that, that's just, that's really what it comes down to. You will get paid. You're not going to be fighting with them about milestones or about how, oh no, the algorithm changed and now we don't want to make your totally weird, smutty visual novel um, because of content acceptance standards or blah, blah, blah. No, if you just want to get paid, you make a framework, you're a freaking wizard with Unreal, and you made this, you know, crazy-ass project, um, you know, for <coughs> the National Institute of Health or the National Science Foundation, whatever, and you just want to get paid, you will get paid. You can also, in some cases... You will be under NDA or, or like, you know, a certain clearance where you can't show what you're working on. But in general, though, if you are working, yeah, on something and it's not subject to an NDA, you can show it. Unlike, you know, the infamous cloak and dagger kind of stuff that we do in this industry where you are going to have a million NDAs. And the certification process for this third point has changed a bit, um, which I put, I, yeah, I did put some links in here, which explain that um, along with that one I showed earlier, um, that if you're going to be considered an economically you know, disadvantaged business, there is like a slightly different certification process you go through with the SBA nowadays. But point is, you can get it. If you're a woman-owned business, um, you know, which now yeah, the SBA said it's their goal to assign 5% of prime federal contracts to women-owned businesses, and that includes our industry code that I showed you, um, they are prioritizing that. So not something you, not something to overlook. Point is, because of Psyca, you can, you know, actually like you jump ahead with some of this. And then once you have the learning curve down you know, with this bidding process, securing new ones becomes easier. Because as I'm about to explain, 
it does. Um, the thing about federal contracting is that negotiation and other stuff is a little more uniform compared to how things roll in the private sector. But the private sector, you know, is obviously not without its merits. Otherwise, we would not be in it. Namely that, yeah, the bidding process can be freaking difficult. Whereas, you know, there's there's people, you know, who like they go to GDC or ECGC, um, PACs, other events. And then there's like, you know, representing it from a publisher who's got a booth there. You show them, you know, your demo. You may be chasing them for months to get a contract or they may just award you on the freaking spot if they love what you're doing and you have, you know, some kind of, you know, demonstration that people are playing the game, that they're interested. But because this is about providing services, you know, to the government, it's not about proving you have a market. It's a little bit different, namely in that, yeah, because you're not selling this, you're not getting royalties in that project. So that is one thing to consider. Um, and as I mentioned, yeah, we have very highly specific laws that, gov that govern these types of contracts. You know, it's not the same as, you know, commercial paper under the Uniform Commercial Code. Um, and then because of all this, government officials use a very different language, which, you know, which very differs, yeah, from how we do things in the private sector. It can be a bit of a culture shock if you just don't have this kind of background, whereas, you know, as someone who helps, you know, indie developers navigate this stuff for a living, I come from a civil servant family. You know, I was a, you know, I was, oh, I was a tax attorney for how many years before I formed Sonic Toad. I'm used to this stuff and translating it between the two sectors, but a lot of people are not. So this can be a bit of a shock. And then they wonder why they're not getting this contract when they succeed in the private sector. And then ultimately you're also, yeah, you're really beholding to the agencies, but also to the taxpayers. And that can matter. <laughs> now, you have, you probably heard me say this you know, a few times by now, or maybe heard it, you know, in the outside world about what a prime federal contract is. And now I'm going to explain it. Um, yeah. So when you hear about something being issued as a prime contract, it means that the, the contractor in question was chosen by the federal agency while subcontractors are, you know, yeah, they're usually very small companies like us. And they get folded into the primes uh, primes bid. So, for example, you know, like Epic would be like you know selected for a prime government contract, you know, building an internal tool, you know, for a department. I just like grab Department of Agriculture just for example's sake, you know, yeah, using like a mix of existing technologies and a proprietary framework. But they need help fulfilling this contract. You know, they need to outsource specific tasks, like yeah, like, like they want support functions, additional help with scripting. So you have to register, you know, as a government vendor and join the bid with them, opposed to being the prime contractor in which that contract is awarded in your company's name. Indie Game Business has one of the longest running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all those speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket.
And so when you're making a proposal, you know, for a federal contract, um, which I'm going to explain where you can find them and how you get this process kicked off, it works a little, you know, similarly to how it does with the government grant show where you, you go on that SBIR website and you see who's, um, you know, accepting proposals and like what it's meant for. But there's a couple, you know, striking differences in that instead of proving your marketability the way that you would to a publisher, you have to prove that you're capable of getting the job done and that you can do this while having, you know, respect for the taxpayers and you're not going to, you know, like go totally crazy with government waste, which you've probably seen, you know, like reports on this and, you know, her talk about over the years. I think it was really... Um, it was really rampant during the Reagan and Trump administrations, especially, you know, with like government contractor graft, you know. And so, yeah, so when you're submitting these proposals, like you want to basically show, hey, we're not going to be totally graft ridden and we can get the job done. Here's why you need us. Here's why you should consider us. That's the type of information you want to put in there, along with any other facts and circumstances that support the argument. And so these types of contracts I'm discussing here are also used in the private sector. And then there's some like lesser known ones that are also used in government contracting. But these are the three main types you're gonna see, which is cost plus, fixed fee, firm fixed price, and time and material. And I put them in this order for a reason. So the cost plus fixed fee type of government contract is really more common. Like um, once again, if we have any like university, you know, people in the audience, um, yeah, this is the majority of research contracts. So if you're doing any, you know, like, you know, um, research about video games, um, anything like in, of the academic sort, this is this tends to be the type of contract that you're going to get. It's not really used in game development much. I know, like, maybe you could use this for a small project, um, but this is really meant for mostly um, research contracts and that the government bears most of the risk and that they're covering both your direct and indirect costs, you know, which is not just like your development costs specifically, but even things like your rent, um, you know, equipment, buy that new laptop, you know, any subscriptions, um, any materials you're using to research, anyone you're paying um, as an employee or as a freelancer, that's all covered. Although the big um, benefit to this type of contract is that you can stop working once the money is gone. You know, so if the game's unfinished and they're just, uh, they do stop paying you, you're under no obligation to continue. You know, it's not like how you've probably heard some horror stories, you know, what happens and when some publishers, you know, discontinue the project and then the payments stop, but you thought that they were going to keep paying you. In this case, you already know if you have a cost plus fixed fee contract that you just stop working when the money's gone and then you both move on with your lives. <laughs> and then the firm fixed price contract um, is more common with um, selling goods rather than creating, you know, games um, or frameworks, any other kind of software. Um, and that you're actually the one who really bears most of the risk because <clears throat> you determine that final prices before you start working on it. So this would mainly work for like a very, very small project not for, you know, like your average, you know, game or framework, and that you also must have a statement of work, you know, very specific deliverables that are included when you negotiate. But this tends to work best, you know, for when you're selling goods, because you usually have, you know, some degree of scale, 
and how much your inputs cost, um, you know, before you get started. Yeah, such as your you're outfitting the local water department with gaming chairs. Yeah, it's always those damn gaming chairs. Um, orthopedists love them. So they're an easy, they're a surprisingly easy sell to government agencies if you're considering a new business opportunity. And this is the type of contract you would be going for. Now, this is the one you really want. This is the absolute best fit for game devs, um, you know, for software technology. It's also used in construction um, frequently in that, you know, you're, you have the goals defined, but you don't know the scope. You don't know the duration because game development, you know, it's just one of those things where there's so many unknowns and then we don't really know how long something's going to take. So this is the type of contract that you really want to negotiate for. And yeah, yeah, it accounts for everything. You know, yeah, wage, you know, wages, um, freelancer payments, overhead, like your rent, supplies, computers, any other general and administrative costs. And then you have to, you know, like mark up your services a bit because why else would you be doing this? And then with that said, 15 to 35% is like the generally accepted standard markup for a government contract because when you are doing a TNM contract with a federal agency, um, there are rules under, you know, the federal acquisitions regulations with a maximum price and a not to exceed clause, along with the maximum labor hours you are allowed to put in because screw crunch, it's never worth it. And also to avoid the runaway cost of the taxpayers. So that's just an important thing to consider. And so you made it this far, you know, you've done these like, you know, really almost insurmountable tasks of getting that proposal together. You've negotiated the type of contract and the terms of that contract. And now you have an offer from the government that, you know, they looked at what you offered. You gave enough facts and circumstances to back your claims up. They like you. They would like to make an offer to procure your services. Now, what makes them government contracts will differ um, watching it vastly different from, you know, publishers, everyone else in the private sector is that there is a fairly uniform negotiation process. This is the thing that tends to throw people unfamiliar with government contracting for a loop and that, yeah, the negotiation process is actually fairly uniform. So it doesn't hurt to do some research on this process. So even if it comes from an unrelated industry, but especially, you know, like try to talk to other people, you know, yeah, in tech and academia who, you know, negotiate for this because, yeah, there is a pretty fairly uniform process and that you're also going to have time to fix mistakes in your proposal. You get an extra life. You don't always, you usually do not get that in the private sector. Um, yeah. And then you're also, you are expected to counter offer and, you know, yeah, and negotiate your fees, which in those fees do have to be in line based on the agency's individual guidelines plus the federal acquisition um, regulations. But yeah, this is what makes um, negotiating government contract is so much different than, you know, private sector, where a private sector, you know, can they can just tell you, no, we don't like that. We can get so-and-so for cheaper, goodbye, and then you move on. A little di lot different here. And then the other thing that also makes, um, you know, government negotiations a lot different, you know, than doing this at the commercial level is that there's also multiple federal employees involved in this process. And, you know, this makes it, you know, pretty um, uniform. But then depending on the agency, depending on what it is that you are providing, um, 
there will be, you know, some additional people involved. Like, but those first three are just like the ones that are always going to be there, which is the CO, the contracting officer, who that's primarily who you're going to be communicating with. And then they have the final say on what goes in that contract. Then you have the contract administrator, the technical representative, and then there may be some other parties involved, you know, depending on the agency, you know, such as, you know, yeah, yeah, because, you know, we're game devs, we fall under the whole tech umbrella. There's usually going to be at least one engineer involved who's going to be like, okay, is this, you know, going to be efficient enough? And that's what they take a look at. And then the other interesting thing is that, yeah, unlike negotiating with publishers, other people, you know, in the commercial realm is that, you also can't assume that both parties really know what they want. And so don't be afraid to ask, you know, a lot of questions with the people, um, you know, on the contracting team. Um, it's common. They actually expect it. So don't be afraid to ask them, you know, what they really want to get out of, um, you know, their work with you. And then what's also interesting is that they also don't aim, you know, to like, try to beat your fees down, you know, if they see that you're giving them enough facts that back up the claims in your proposal, you know, like they see that, hey, you are really good at what you do, or that this type of, you know, simulation is really effective, um, blah, 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 you know, if they can, if they see that, like, you can really back up your claims, they're not going to, like, try to get away with paying you less. Yeah, good luck trying to do that in the private sector, Anyway, and then, yeah, once again, as I keep bearing to repeat, the federal contract negotiation is fairly uniform. So use that to your advantage if you're going to pursue a government contract, because there's so many resources you can hit up, you know, to um, see, like, how can we make this proposal effective? And what can we do when we get to that government offer stage? You know, like, don't be afraid to research and don't be afraid to ask questions. Even when you're at that stage, it's expected. And so now here comes the, mil the literal million dollar question. How do you find a government contract? I have this whole handy list right here. So when you get the slide deck, you can reference this whenever you're ready. But the two main websites that you're going to be utilizing is SAM.gov and USA.gov. And what's interesting about SAM.gov is that you can lurk it for as long as you need to. Um, you can do simple and pretty advanced searches, you know, based on, you know, on keyword. You can search by the specific agency. Um, yeah, this, if there's a specific service or product that an agency is looking for, you can look it up that way. And you don't even need to make an account until you're ready to go bid on that contract. And then USA.gov has loads of really helpful resources if you're new to government contracting, um, you know, about what they tend to look for, you know, what they don't want. Um, they have everything on federal, state, and local. And they even have a whole directory of where you can find, you know, the contact people to get into um, local and state government contracting. And then if you want to go reach out to your state directly, then what you want to look up is something that would be named state acquisitions or state procurements or something similar. That's like, what that's what it would be called. So yeah, these, so this page right here, just has, yeah, all of your resources on where to find government contracts. It's all there 
you can look it up for free. You don't need to make, you don't even need to make an account until you're ready to bid. It's all there and sky's the limit basically from there. So yay, thank you for listening. Um, yeah, thanks for attending today. There's lots of other great speakers. And if you are seeking, you know, a, pub a publisher like many are, also some great opportunities to do at the rest of the event. So I just you know, like to thank, um, you know, Jay, <coughs> Jay and Indy for, you know, hosting this. It's always great to be back. And a little friendly reminder, this is what I do for a living. If you need help getting that government grant ready or just with business problem solving, here's where you can find me. And I am now ready to take some Q&A because I think we got a little time left. And yeah, um, be sure to catch some of the other great speakers today. And thank you for attending. Yes. Thanks so much, Rachel. That was awesome. Okay, let's, get this, let's get this out of here. So you, if you have any questions, please drop them in the chat. We will bring them up. Rachel loves questions. So ask the hardest <laughs> ones you can possibly ask. <laughs> Write the deepest ones. Let's let's get this out here. We've got a good question right here from Philip on Twitch. Okay. Is there a path for a non-US based entity from Europe to work on government funded contracts explicitly benefiting US entities and local economies or is this an obvious no-go and you need to at least be a US based subsidiary? Asking okay. for a friend. I mean a founder. Asking <laughs> as a founder based in We're Europe. based in Europe. Now that oh, that's a fantastic question. Um and for that one, yeah, it ultimately depends on, I know, it's one of those things where just like how people ask how long it takes to make a game, the answer is it depends. Yeah, it it does depend, um, you know, on the government agency in question. Um, as for you being, yeah, being based in Europe, it, I think it definitely does help to either work with a U.S.-based subsidiary or partnering with an American company. Like if you're going to be a subcontractor, I think you would have more difficulty getting a prime contract just based on that circumstance. They do tend to prioritize, you know, businesses based in America. As for the state and local, yeah, that's just, that's kind of out of my scope because that really depends on their roles. Like I mentioned with, you know, the state of New Jersey, for instance, like I, and I am not 100% certain if it's also true of the government contracts. I know it is for state jobs mm -hmm. um, because my dad worked for the state for a while and then they changed that around. And luckily he was grandfathered in, but I knew people, you know, who got screwed with that because, you know, New York is, you know, New York, and New Jersey share borders with lots of other states. It's been a bit of a shock. Now that I'm in California, just, oh, well, you can drive like 18 hours. You're still in California. Right. It's different right. when you have more places that share borders. <laughs> so, yeah, like you have, you would have to like individually check with that city, state or county to see what they allow. Like they may be fine with a foreign contractor before the federal acquisition rules you would probably be best off with, you know, a U.S. subsidiary. I hope mm -hmm. that, I hope that answered the question well enough. No, that that was a that was a good challenge. Yeah, that was a good challenge. Yeah, that's and that's interesting about. So when we were in Oregon, right, to drive from to drive across California, right, it takes like all day to <laughs> yeah. get from where we were. We were just in Southern Oregon, so we're close to the California border. But to get to Southern yeah. California it takes all day. Now that we moved to Florida, where we at? We go, it takes us three hours and we drive through Alabama, Mississippi, and into yep. Louisiana. So we're just four states, bam, in just like four yep. hours. Yep. Okay. 
So here's Joker's got questions. Joker's always got questions. Are there any specific yeah. funding opportunities for artist groups in game development? Third, 3D modeling, music, voice acting, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, you would have to check with the National Endowment for the Arts. That's like that's the primary um, program for um, artist funding. And then also check with your state department as well. They usually have some kind of culture and arts foundation. Um, one thing I actually meant to pop in this presentation that I that I overlooked. Um, I don't know if this chat window is functioning or what, but um, I'm just going to type something in here really quick. Is this guy is an expert on this and has lots of really cool essays on this. Okay, there's um, um a professor I believe I don't he was um at Parsons or NYU one of the big game design schools back in the homeland John Sharp. Um mm -hmm. he does these he had he he has so much amazing content you should check out because um he basically had this whole thing about like games as public art because you know, public mm. art has been proven you know to be a big moneymaker for local economies and games and other interactive media are now being thrown into that fold so if you have you know some like really cool innovative project like i'm thinking about a studio from back home um esc design like they made um they, they make these like big um like multiplayer experiences meant to be played on a large screen like as in theater screen not like your tv at home um mm -hmm. you know and like that would be something that has a really neat application for you know public art where it's a massive screen thousands of people can interact with it daily and and so yeah like john sharp has a lot of really great writing on this topic and where you can find resources to consider the games as public art path yeah i meant to pop a slide in there but like i said there's just so much info on the contracts i had to right to put a lot of space to it right um, yeah but i would definitely um look into that along with just in terms of like art grants in general start with the national endowment for the arts for the federal level and then check your state and local you know like art um departments or if you even have digital media ones now too that's where a lot of you know film grants get funneled through and some games are starting to be included with that so don't overlook that um and yeah that's where i would start so did you do you i know there's tons of grants for yeah for for canadians right, do, right? oh yeah yeah they have a much more generous program robust robust yes <laughs> oh, so oh, do you yeah. feel like the u.s is like maintaining their grant level or is it really stepping up their game to oh to god no no <laughs> no okay no um it's definitely a went nowhere more, it's i mean i think it's we're we're seeing very very slow change and you know in games starting to be included more you know in arts grants mm -hmm. not we're not just solely in the business and technology realms anymore mm -hmm. it's like slowly happening but yeah like trying to get an nea grant you know national endowment for the arts has it's yeah it, it can be just like a major slog compared to like the relative ease you'll have getting a grant in say ontario which i'm not saying it's a complete cakewalk you know just based on some canadian developers who i've talked to um like there's um there's one uh, there's one, oh god their name just completely blanked on me i know them personally that should not be happening mm. um oh yeah um yeah 
Bloom Media, yeah, yeah, Digital Bloom, um, yeah, Bloom Digital, that was it, yeah. Like, they made um, Lager Daters, um, you know, a couple other really, really interesting games. Um, yeah, Bloom Digital. I, yeah, because I remember, yeah, chatting with them at GDC. Like, they they got, um, yeah, those Ontario Arts grants to make uh, quite a few of their titles. And then they had to, like, pr- and then something happened with the process. Like, I don't remember what it was exactly, but there was, like, something that happened, like, with either the grant rules changing or, like, they didn't get the application in on time and had to, like, privately fund their current title in the works. It was like some, some hiccup took place, but so yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, without its issues, but in general though, yeah, like Canada has far more generous arts grants than we do. Oh, right. If yeah. I, if I remember correctly, I think even gaming PR companies would get grants for employees that live in Canada. You have to live in Canada, of course, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, no, like Canada has been subsidizing the games industry for a while. It's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. It's it's crazy. It's awesome. Uh, another one from Joker. Also, is there any funding for a third party contractor company? Oh, I'm interested in this for connecting mm-hmm. streamers and players and game companies. I'm certain what the industry for that is exactly, but was thinking content creation services and have yet to find funding specific for it like influencer real influencer yeah. content creator services yeah i mean that's starting to like yeah basically like get into the fold of, yeah you know of like other like talent agencies and like pr agencies like you would basically you yeah, have to go through i think a lot of the traditional channels like investors you know who can see the power in that kind of platform especially you know now that influencers um you know are becoming you know much more like codified you know into our media landscape compared to say 10 years ago even like 10 years ago you know like the word influencer carried a much different connotation you know like brands obviously see the power in that um and you know but like streamers and content creators are also now like folded into games when it used to be mm-hmm. twitch was something of like a little niche platform be like oh my god i can meet people who talk to their games like i do <laughs> Only now we're mm-hmm. doing it in public. And then now it's this like massive billion dollar industry that game devs like now need to get, you know, in with the stream with streamers. Yeah, ahead of time. No, I man, I think that's a wonderful business idea. It's definitely something, you know, that we need. And I think that that's, that's something that would have success, you know, yeah, with more traditional funding channels rather than the government grant route. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> But that would be a good, you know, that's a good idea. Uh, Fishbox asks, uh, kind of late to the stream, but are these grants and funds worldwide or just inside of the U.S.? What I would suggest is that this video is online. So you can go back and, and watch the whole video and get a bunch more information into uh, what she is speaking about. Because you're late. You're late. You're late. <laughs> How dare you be late? No, it's fine. It's recorded. You can you can watch it again on Twitch, on YouTube, and on LinkedIn. You can watch it anytime. So uh, another one more question here from Joker. Have you ever seen any game companies get grants for military-specific contracts? Yes. With that, how mm-hmm. scary is it that games could be that realistic to help train military via simulation, but also could be released for the public community too? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. There's a lot of devs who just, you know, small, you know, take back whatever our beliefs or morality is and get those DOD contracts because they are plentiful and they are very lucrative. Mm-hmm. As for it being released to the public community, I mean, yeah, that doesn't happen because the 
one little side note before I dig into the semantics of that is that the DOD actually has, um, you know, its own rules for government contracting on top of, you know, the basic federal acquisitions rules. Like they have so many additional clauses when it comes to it. And they're a lot more secretive than other agencies, as you could probably surmise. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. No, but there are a lot of game. I don't know. No, back in New York, I knew quite a few game devs who took the DOD contracts. They're like, uh, I was not comfortable with this, but hey, this helped you know fund the games and the co- the, the games we really want to make and the causes we want to support. So there are the people who do take military contracts. They're, I said, they're out there. They're pretty damn plentiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would not get released though to the public. You know, you could apply what you learned. You know, on on the job, you know, to any other project you have in the future, but any proprietary um, content um, or frameworks that you make for um, the DOD, that that usually is walled off from the public. They own it all. They do. They do. They do. Well, this has been awesome. Do you have any final parting words of wisdom? Because I know you've always got words of wisdom. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, just... I, I'm always a firm believer, you know, in just making making what you want to make and putting it out there because you never know how it's going to do. Um, always be open minded, you know, to different projects, different methods of funding. Um, you know, yeah, like a lot of people wouldn't think of the government contract route, but it can be surprisingly stable and lucrative, you know, for a game dev. And the nice thing about government contracts too is that um, they don't have to last forever. Um, you know, you you do the thing. You take as a learning experience and move on. Like there's stuff that, yeah, I learned with my local government contracts where I'm like, God, I would not ever do this again. And then I had things where I'm like, hey, it was pretty cool that like I got to negotiate, you know, a much higher fee than I expected. Um, you know, it's got to you really got to be open minded and adaptable in this business. Um, mm-hmm. That's probably the only reason I have stayed in games so freaking long <laughs> by now. <laughs> Um, and yeah, yeah, learning lessons are important, not about just like what you could do better, but a lot of lessons I've learned is like what I do not want to do ever again. Or if I see something, oh, yeah. <laughs> some, something that's happening, I don't want to do that. Right. That's, I feel like that's sometimes a bigger lesson about what do you don't want to do. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't want to do, and then you can also get, yeah, you just end up, you know, doing things you never would have expected. Um, Hey, look, you know, if you approached me, you know, like five, six years ago and said that I would actually be living in California now, I would have left my ass off. But hey, look, five years ago. I'm walking here. (laughs) Five years ago, I went on, you know, a month long business tour, um, you know, up and down the West Coast. And then that was actually what preceded me moving out here. I think it was. It was really a dream of over 30 years that I kind of ignored, um, which is too much to get into now. But basically, um, yeah, I I left the homeland. I'm probably not fucking coming back. I'm sorry if I dropped an F-bomb there. Um, I, I usually avoid that on stream, but uh, I'm like in private. But <laughs> I was just, yeah, I'm a, I don't think I'm coming back. I, I just can't now. Dude, I, I have in-unit laundry in this place. This is the first time in my like entire adult life I've ever even had that. I, I can have giant lizards here. That, that was probably 90% of what motivated me to move here. <laughs> so That's awesome. Be open-minded. That's awesome. 
you don't know where life's going to take you. And then there's one final pearl wisdom before I log off. Um, if you haven't released the game that you want to release, like, you know, by the time you're 30 or after it, your life's not over, kid. You got much time left. Um, I just turned 37 this year and, uh, you know, I'm finally working on a lot of the games that I actually wanted to work on, you know, mm -hmm. for so long and didn't have the funding, didn't have the headspace. Like I said, screw it, sold my condo in New York and uh, moved out here. And now I'm making my dream games and have a giant lizard. Um, and yeah, it didn't happen until I was 37 years old. So you got California time. dream games, giant lizard in, in unit laundry. Bam. Dream done. Yeah. So be open-minded. Um, you never know where uh, life's going to take you. And then you'll, you're probably going to end up living your dream and making the games you really want to make a little later than you anticipated. Yeah. We went from Oregon to Florida. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, well, thank, that's you so, that. thank you so, so much, Rachel. I know there's other questions. So if you would be so kind as to go into our discord and hang out for a little bit, there is a channel called, what, what is the channel called? I keep repeating it over and over, but then I forget it. Podcast questions. If you want to go in there, I know Joker had another question, but we've got to get to the next session, which is titled Play Like LeBron, but from your couch. Hell Fun yeah. and realism. <laughs> Speaking about realism in mobile mobile sports games. Yeah, that's that's going to be interesting. Let's see. The speaker for that is da, 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 Quentin Salat from Studio Zero, Zero One. All right. Thank you so much, Rachel. And thanks for having me. All right. Peace out, everyone. Peace. <laughs>Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.